Movement can fix a lot of things. It may not be easy as taking a pill, but it's also has a much more robust impact on every system within the human body. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Welcome back. Today, if you're sitting down, I challenge you to get up, go for a walk, stand up, do a jumping jack, do whatever you need to do to move, because we're joined by Dr. Phil Wagner from Sparta Science, and we're going to learn all about movement health and how employers are helping equip their teams to live healthier lives through embracing movement. Here we go. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, Dr. Phil Wagner from Sparta Science. I've been really looking forward to this one, but maybe we can just get started and you can let our audience know about Sparta Science and what you all do. Yeah, so Sparta Science is a movement health platform. And what we do is we have established a platform that brings in sensor data, including one of our own native sensors, and looks at the patterns of movement from a perspective of how do we identify how to optimize human performance and limit injuries, pain, and improve the rehabilitation process. Tell me a little bit more about movement health. What does movement health mean? Yeah, so movement health we define as really the ability to move without pain or fear. Why would somebody be afraid to move? What are some of the situations that they might find themselves in where this becomes a challenge? Yeah, and you keyed in on the fear piece because pain is a little more obvious, right? If you're in pain, you don't want to move as much. And one of the interesting things we came across is we started working with athletes in sports. And in the research, there's a lot of these studies that have found kinesiophobia. So, for example, athletes that tear their ACL, one of the reasons they're at risk for another injury is they're afraid to move, you know, and get hurt again. And then extending that further, we started working in the geriatric space with older individuals. And the, one of the largest risks for falls is the fear of falling, mm. right? So what happens is individuals that are older stop moving less, take shorter steps. So it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where if you're scared of something happening, you actually end up making that more likely by doing less or changing the way you move. And so what brought you to founding Sparta Science? Why are you interested in this problem and what inspired you to start the company? Yeah, I hit both angles of the pain and the fear on that <laughs> movement side as an athlete. I had dozens of different surgeries and injuries that as an athlete was really devastating because I really made a concerted effort to be healthy, kept doing things and ultimately led to the same result of being injured was scared of doing things because they didn't want to get injured again. It was this nasty cycle and ultimately was exposed to the lack of data and information that could help guide you into a different path. You know, like exists with things like diabetes or other chronic diseases, there's much clearer measurement and a much clearer playbook of like, okay, here's what we're trying to do. Here's what we're trying to avoid. And based on data, here are the steps to actually achieve that. But when it comes to physical therapy or fitness, it's more of a fad or subjective approach where I like doing this or in physical therapy, pushing in my hands mm. is a big test, right? When we think about other aspects of medicine, the fact that's a major test 
is something we've got to, I think, move beyond and use data to do so. So was there a particular injury that you had that really sticks out? What I'm curious to hear about is what your journey was like going through physical therapy and, and how that journey might be different had the device that you've produced, if it was available at that point, how would that patient journey have been different? Yeah, I think we all naturally in the rehab process or fitness process gravitate towards things we enjoy, right? Mm-hmm. So when I got injured, I enjoy lifting heavier weights. And so there's a number associated to it, right? Which is great. If I squat 300 pounds, right? Then my goal, obviously, is to squat more than 300 pounds, right? So you keep trying to move the number. And as I tried to do that in the rehab process, I certainly became stronger, but I became stronger in a very narrow way that ultimately just heaped dysfunction on dysfunction that already existed, as opposed to using data to say, you know what? These are movements like Pilates, for example, that you, Phil, need to be doing instead to prevent these types of injuries that keep happening, right? So it's really using the data as a Sherpa, if you will, of, hey, don't take that route up the mountain, take this route instead, based on your own movement characteristics. Hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about the force plate device that you've developed? Yeah. So when we started looking at devices and sensors, we wanted to find the sensors or devices that were the most granular, how could we, in the shortest amount of time, capture the largest amount of data? And that's where we came across the force plate, because when we do a balance, for example, it takes about 10 seconds on each side, it's able to capture about a million data points. Hmm. And so that type of granularity was a data scientist's dream, right? And you get all this data in a short amount of time, it really allows you to analyze all those signals and start to create groupings or clusters that can put you into buckets on where your risks are and more importantly, what potentially can reduce those risks. And so the force plate was real key because it allows to say, okay, let's look at one of the most common approaches, which is weighing in, right? You stand Mm -hmm. on the scale, you get your body weight. So let's use that as our pace car and Instead of just trying to get body weight, let's get a million other data points in that same short amount of time. Because most injuries, whether it's a fall in the elderly or an ACL injury in an athlete, most injuries have to do with the interaction with the ground. Mm. Either it's too short, too long, too left, too right. And so how do we analyze that pattern very quickly to direct the individual to a better pass? Mm. So let's talk a little bit about some of the use cases for this technology. So we've talked a bit about MSK and recovery and rehabilitation, but what other use cases are there? Yeah, I think one of the things that excites us about movement is we look at movement as either the cause or result of every condition. So we think about someone that does fall, they stop moving, they, they start putting on weight, which creates cardiovascular problems. But the opposite flow can exist as well. Whereas if you're overweight, you don't feel comfortable moving, it just increases those metabolic conditions. So I think the the value of movement we look at is beyond musculoskeletal. Mm. So many of, we use falls as examples, are neurological. And that things like even COVID, long COVID, and delayed effects of those COVID, they affect how you balance and move in the same way that You know, there's a lot of research that's come out that shows concussions increase your musculoskeletal injury risk. So 
when you have a brain or neural injury, that changes how your muscles function. So rather than looking at the cause, the musculoskeletal piece, it's really looking at all the inputs that may lead to that. So how are you getting the device to patients today and how do you integrate it into their provider's workflows? Workflow is always a key issue in healthcare, right? Because patients are coming in, you have so much administrative and things to tackle in a short amount of time. And that's where that analogy of kind of the weight scale comes in. And a lot of times patients come in, they do weigh in. So why not swap that part out in the workflow of, hey, weigh in, get your body weight, but you get a million other data points at the same time Mm. that can then be used to not only baseline, but then track the individual every time they come into the clinic, the office, or the organization. And in the U.S. healthcare system, reimbursement's also a big piece, right, to all this. And so thankfully, balance is something that insurance companies and providers both recognize as a critical function in the rehab process, as well as in the aging process. And so it's very easy to be able to get reimbursement from this balance piece both as a screening tool, but also as an assessment tool over time to see how that balance and that function is changing. Hmm. Tell me about how your technology could be used in clinical trials. Yeah, so I think a lot of times in clinical trials, pharmaceutical companies, for example, are looking at, okay, how is function changing with some sort of intervention? And ultimately, what we're trying to do is validate how different interventions impact movement. And so that can be from a pharmaceutical, because I think as we know, a lot of pharmaceuticals, one of the biggest side effects is imbalance, dizziness, right? So how does that actually impact that function? And the other piece is how do certain exercises or lifestyle changes impact movement, right? Do you really need to walk 10,000 steps a day, or is it more like 6,000, or is it 12,000? Because 10,000 steps, for example, the reason why that's a, a target is the first pedometer came out of Japan, and that translation was 10,000 steps. <laughs> so as a result, that's been integrated into this rule of 10,000 steps a day, and that's from the 1950 pedometer out of Japan. <laughs> and there's no really data behind that. In fact, most data shows, okay, you need 4,500, and about 7,500, the impact tends to level off, mm. right? So how do we actually use assessments and data integrated to identify what are the thresholds for health. Because I think everybody, what everybody wants is what's the minimal amount I can do to get the maximal benefit and looking at this functional testing to start identifying those thresholds, but also identifying which types of exercises are most important for the individual. How important is um, providing feedback on the measurement itself to the patient? versus just getting the measurement. So you've clearly done a lot of work and generating a lot of information and biomarkers very quickly from the core technology. How important is it to synthesize that and deliver it back to the patient in something that's interpretable and ultimately actionable? That's huge. It's absolutely huge because medicine has evolved so much. When I was a last training as a physician, patients would always come in with printouts of WebMD, right? They would search up and ask Dr. Google, hey, what should I do about this? And they'd come in and I bring that up because individuals have access to so much information now that any sort of assessments or information really 
should and must be available to that individual because they want to know. And that knowledge really is the key to compliance. Mm. Because if you want a patient to be compliant, change their habits, change their lifestyle, ultimately they have to know why. And once they know why, they also want to see over time, if they do change those things, am I getting better? Because the frustrating part is if you make lifestyle changes, if you make habit changes, and you don't get that immediate feedback, it's very easy to give up on that. Like, why am I even doing this? It's not even working. Mm. And that's why so many patients leave physical therapy, physiotherapy too early. Because they don't really know if they're getting better, even though they probably are. So being able to share that information back to the patient, back to the individual really completes that feedback loop because where medicine is evolving is the practitioner and the individual. It's more of a partnership now than it used to be. Mm. And so that kind of centralized language in a very simple manner is very key to that process of individuals getting better. Yeah. And uh, with generative AI, this will just become even more acute, right? Where WebMD becomes something much more powerful and seemingly accurate. Right. I say seemingly because we'll see whether it's hallucinating or not, but even more reason to rely on your healthcare provider and have a strong relationship and to have well baseline data against which you can compare yourself. I can you share any detail on the traction you're seeing? So we've talked a lot about how the technology can be used. Can you share some examples of how it has and the impact it's had? Yeah. So I think we focus mostly on on helping organizations because there's so much scale they have to deal with. And a lot of times there's this tale of clinics or organizations that have to operate more rurally with less um, access to practitioners. And so most practitioners are fairly overloaded. So what we've seen is, for example, in at least in, in falls and aging, is that very quickly individuals can assess their fall risk. And one story, we were just assessing a long-term care facility and a lot of the patients were fairly healthy, gone on, tested their balance. And they were really upset that their balance was low. And one of the reasons they were upset is they walk six to eight miles a day. And so they're saying, I'm walking, I'm putting mm. forth all this effort, but my balance is low. And so it highlighted them, hey, the walking is good and you're doing it because you can measure steps. But what about other things like resistance training? Because walking isn't the only way to improve your fall risk, right? You have to be incorporating other things like resistance training into that program. Mm. That's one example. I think another example we see more on the other end in performance groups is the desire to always do too much. We work with a university athletic program. We saw all their forces go up extremely in this 30-day period. And we asked, what are you guys doing? And they said, it's easy. We used to train three days a week. Now we train two days So on a macro level, it's understanding, okay, we can actually do less and actually get more out of that. So ultimately, in both situations, what it should do is give people back time, which is the biggest limiting resource for all of us. But I can appreciate for the sports use case as well, all that time practicing is also potential time for injury. Uh, you know, yep. and unplanned events to happen as well. Have you used uh, the technology in any clinical trials yet? So not in any clinical trials, but certainly in research perspective research, yeah. as well as retrospective research, tracking over time. How do some of these assessments, how does some of the sensor data relate to 
subjective testing. One, one abstract we just published was comparing our balance test against surveys around fall risk. And how do those relate? How do those relate to more subjective testing, at least in fall risk around sit to stand or what's called the tug test. So individuals mm-hmm. will start on a chair, walk 10 feet and back in under 12 seconds. And that's the timed up and go test, what they call the tug test. Mm-hmm. And so how does it relate to some of these more subjective testing that are usually more past sale? So that's an example. And then another example, which is a great example of machine learning is we found jumps correlate to elbow injuries in pitchers. Mm. And so that's the value of some of this unsupervised machine learning is you find patterns that you would have never looked for. We would have never gone in saying, hey, let's find an upper body risk from a jump. Yeah. Right. But the data, when it's unsupervised like that, can start identifying patterns and then the brain can make sense of it as, oh yeah, that makes sense. If I don't use my legs to jump, then I probably use my arms more. So when I pitch, I throw with my arm instead of my legs. That's probably what leads to the upper body injury. I'm excited to see how things evolve over time. And if uh, more investigators lean in and engage with you to use the device in a decentralized trial, because I could imagine just balance testing, very difficult to do remotely. Even if you were going to do it in a site-based trial, having individuals with the appropriate license and knowledge to be able to accurately assess for that would be really challenging and may not be very well connected to the core outcomes that a study is trying to predict. Um, But if you look at some of the therapeutic areas that we need to tackle, like neurodegenerative, really that should be a pretty significant biomarker for adverse effects. So I could imagine a world where you ship out a Sparta science plate to all the study participants. And then during the trial, you know, you get on it once a day and, you know, that data is being fed back and analyzed. And that would be very useful. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, you nailed where the research community is moving more to the decentralized trials because ultimately in the past, we've been limited by, let's look at 12 subjects, right? In this small setting, right? And try to come up with conclusions based on that. But there's so much human variability. Mm. Right. That what we really need is large scale decentralized trials and things like wearables and other sensor data, like the force plate we have, are great to be able to capture large numbers of individuals to actually start limiting some of that variability that may bias the conclusions of the information. I think that's just such a missing piece, that type of scale. A wearable data may not be as effective as a gate land. Mm-hmm. Or a car or an EKG lab in a hospital. But in a way, it's the scale, the number of patients that starts to overwhelm maybe a lesser granularity than you could find in a hospital or a clinical lab. Mm. Let's talk a little bit more about the work you've done on digital biomarkers. And one misconception many have is as soon as I get access to some streaming data sets, I'm going to throw them into an AI model and it's just going to spit out something useful. And I'm going to change the world and make everything better. And then you get into it and you learn that there are a lot of key decisions you need to make, whether it's supervised, unsupervised, the the training data, how you process and prepare that training data, um, not to mention the investments on inference and just how to actually make it happen. Can you share any lessons you've learned on your journey just on taking that raw data exhaust and converting it into something that's clinically useful? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that is a common issue, right? Is you collect data and you expect to dump it somewhere. It's just going to sit out this magical 
conclusion that you can automatically take action on. I think most folks don't realize that the majority of the data scientist's job is cleansing, wrangling, organizing all that information, right? That's the brunt of the work to be able to actually have conclusions that are ultimately relevant and build those models. I think one of the key things we learned is we had to implement, and this is where most of our IP is around, filters within the collection process to actually automatically eliminate noise, Mm. right? And so as that's coming in, how can the software identify those areas of noise to trim those out to really limit the bad data coming in, right? There's a great saying, right? Garbage in, garbage out, right? How do we make sure that we're limiting that garbage that's coming in and noise so there's better signals that can be leveraged against each other? And then the other piece is that the reliability of the data um, and the metrics is so critical because if the metric itself is unreliable, you're chasing your tail. You're never really going to be able to find any clear patterns. Mm. But before we get to the inference, you got to first make sure that the data is filtered properly. And then second, make sure that the metric itself is reliable enough to decide, okay, if it's all of a sudden variable, that's a signal as opposed to it's variable because the metric itself is just random. Yeah, and not a baseline shift or something. Exactly, exactly. And so that's it. I think that kind of stuff is really boring and a lot of times overlooked, right? The reliability piece of the metric. And so that's a real important piece that we've always been focused on for the metrics that, that our sensor produces, but also any incoming metrics that come in. What are some of your goals over the next year, few years? What do you hope to achieve as part of science? What are you steering the team toward? Yeah, so we we started mostly focused on our native sensor, the force plate, because it produces so much data. And more recently, we've evolved into a much more full-scale data platform that certainly brings in our native sensor, but then also brings in wearables. You know, and that wearable piece starts to associate exposures with outcomes, right? Because that's truly what allows you to start to validate intervention. So we look at these pieces, activities, exposures, wearables, and then all the way on the other end, outcomes, being able to bring that in anonymously, whether that's the number of claims, where the injuries are happening, how long the injury took, what's the performance data. So having that full-scale platform to connect exposures, activities, all the way to those outcomes, because we tend to usually focus on one or the other and then make assumptions, right? And on one end, we'll assume, hey, 10,000 steps leads to better health. But we kind of got to know and define what data is better health, mm. right? And on the other end, we could say, hey, eat more vegetables, that leads to better health, which we know, but how many servings of vegetables, right? And so being able to correlate the activity inputs with the actual outcome. You know, in, in pharmaceuticals, it's a dose response, right? What's the right dose to the right response? And so that's really where the platform is focused both now and in the future and continue to develop that protocol. Mm. Um, what advice do you have for other entrepreneurs and founders that are creating hardware solutions, right? So hardware is hard. You have a lot longer cycle time. You need to plan a lot more. It's a more complex supply chain. You're not just writing lines of code. You have to think about atoms. What advice do you have for founders that are also creating hardware solutions in healthcare and life sciences innovation? 
Yeah, I think it's simplicity is really important. And particularly when it comes to the volume of hardware, right? Rather than having a bunch of different SKUs of different hardware, that becomes much more difficult as opposed to zeroing in on less hardware and more depth. And so I think that's the biggest advice I'd have. We've been tempted a lot to say, hey, we should have this piece of hardware, right? And we should have this piece of hardware as like an add-on. It's very tempting, right? But there's a dark side to that, right? Is you've got more supply chain issues to deal with, more quality control to deal with, warranty issues, all these issues. So I think having less hardware, choosing that less hardware that's going to be the most impactful is really key. So we, at least internally, always talk about depth rather than width. You know, a good example we talk about internally is like a blood draw. It's minimal hardware. You draw the blood, but there's infinite metrics and data you can get from that blood draw. Mm. Pursuing everything with that mindset of depth rather than width when it comes to hardware is probably the biggest lesson. Mm. I'm reminded of when Steve Jobs came back to Apple after his brief sojourn in Next and things weren't going so well. The teams were really unfocused. There was all these different product lines and he drew a grid, you know, classic consulting two by two, mobile and desktop and consumer and business focused. And you had the iMac and the MacBook Pro and the Mac Pro, but just everything else getting thrown out. We're only doing four products and that's it. And I think yep. you're right. You've got you've to focus. That's right. Yeah. And I think with that focus, understanding your business and where it's focused to, like for us, we're much more focused on the enterprise B2B side. And so it's very easy to get pulled to the consumer side, but because they're such different products, they're different marketing sales approaches, right? And as you choose which hardware, it's staying true. Yeah. Very similar to that matrix of who's actually the folks that you're interacting with the most and where are they going to find the most value? Which types of hardware, which types of metrics, which types of platforms? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you decided on the B2B business model? Because as we're talking, I'm thinking I'd like to buy this thing, to be <laughs> yeah, honest. I know. You know, because I'm a quantified selfer and I'm not going to say the brand of smart scale I have, but I have a reputable, nice smart scale, but I could probably get a lot more interesting information from yours, right? Uh, and I'm sure you wrestled with this. And this is a really difficult uh, decision for a lot of early stage healthcare innovators is you B2B or B2C. And you just said why, because they're completely different go-to-market motions. And really you find sales, marketing, and product marketing leaders who are typically strong in one and not the other, because they're just such distinct cohorts. So it very much is, um, it's an impactful, almost a one-way door decision. So can you talk about how you made that decision and what factors you took into account? Yes. No, I think it's a great question. I think because each department is so different, a one-way door, if you will, from a product standpoint, one is more about the B2C side. A lot of times is more about the UI, right? Is engaging, entertaining, how much does it draw the individual in versus the enterprise? You start talking about infrastructure, compliance, security, right? And from a marketing side, there's a longer sales cycle with multi-layered individuals on the enterprise B2B side versus a very fast one-to-one interaction on the consumer side. The decision we had to look at, right, is what are we trying to do and where are we the most passionate about as a company? And a lot of it was around really helping teams succeed. Mm. We began in sports teams, you know, then military 
and now healthcare. And these teams approach in all those areas really require a very strong commitment to the infrastructure, compliance, security side of things. And there's no way to get our size that we could address all those needs and provide the level of consumer necessities around UI, easy to buy price points and balance those two is just impossible. So we had to make a choice. Are we going to be more engaging, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. On the consumer side, or are we going to be more secure and scalable on the enterprise side? Mm -hmm. And we ultimately fared towards that B2B side. The challenge on both ends is it's not always a hard line between them. A lot of times people talk about B2B to C. (laughs) <laughs> because when you do work with enterprises, ultimately there is a consumer, the patient, the individual, there is a consumer. So there's pieces of it. And on the B2C side, the fastest way to get a lot of consumers is to work with an organization that rolls it out, it rolls it out to a thousand, 10,000 individuals. So it's really having some guidelines that helps those boundaries not become too easy to cross, but also so they're not too hardlined at the same time. Mm. When you and I take a break today and we leave our listeners behind and you go off and you probably go do a really hardcore workout or something and then jump on your Sparta Science scale and check your movement afterward, what question are you going to wish I asked you? Yeah, I think the biggest, I think the biggest question is why is it movement, this movement health, why isn't a larger awareness around it? I think a lot of it is because it, it really lacks an anchor from an assessment piece. And it really, we really lack the awareness that underlines almost every human condition. And so we really have to understand a lot of issues, neurological, metabolic, a lot of the root causes are from poor movement or lack of movement, right? And so I think it continually has to be spread. Hey, movement can fix a lot of things. It may not be easy as taking a pill, but it's also has a much more robust potential impact on every system within the human body. Dr. Phil Wagner, thank you so much for joining me on the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. I'm going to go move. Uh, I'll, 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 go, I'll, go, I'll go take a walk. Hopefully our, our audience does too. And thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. The best way to support the podcast is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also appreciate your reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have ideas on how we can improve the show, please let us know. Our feedback survey is in the show notes. See you next week.